Gospel according to Luke. This reading comes from Luke 17, 1 through 10, in which Jesus is talking to the disciples in the midst of a series of very difficult teachings. Using a story, he challenges their definition of faith. May we find ourselves in the story and the story in ourselves. Jesus said to the disciples, Stumbling blocks will inevitably arise, but woe to those through whom stumbling blocks come. Those people would be better off thrown into the sea with milestones around their necks than to make one of these little ones stumble. Be on your guard. If your sister or brother do wrong, correct them. If they repent, forgive them. If they sin against you seven times a day, and seven times a day turn back to you saying, I'm sorry, forgive them. The apostles said to Jesus, increase our faith. Jesus answered, if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, uproot yourself and plant yourself in the sea, and it would obey. If one of you has hired help plowing a field or herding sheep, and they came in from the field, would you say to them, come and sit at my table? Wouldn't you say instead, prepare my supper, put your apron on and wait on me while I eat and drink, and then you can eat and drink afterwards? Would you be grateful to the workers who were just doing their job? It's the same with you who hear me. When you have done all you have been commanded to do, say, we are simply workers. We have done no more than our duty. Once... There was a woman who was bound and determined to be a good Christian. She read her Bible every day, and every day strove diligently to apply Jesus' teachings to her own life. She was a woman of strong will and fierce determination, and she set to work. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, she read one day. So she resolved to pray three times a day, once before each meal, to show God that she loved him. To her, God was indeed a capital H, him, benevolently watching human history unfold from a heavenly throne. Love your neighbor as yourself, she read the next day. So she set to work volunteering at a local shelter three times a week, serving her poorest neighbors. She showed up faithfully, though it was difficult to accommodate into her already packed schedule, filled with kids' soccer practices and errands to run. But she reminded herself through gritted teeth she was a servant of God, and this is what God expected. She knew she just had to have faith. If you're presenting your offering and remember your brother has something against you, she read the next day, first go be reconciled with your brother. And this brought to mind a host of friends and family members she felt had done her wrong over the years, and she resolved to call three of them a day to let them know she forgave them. With each phone call, as she spoke the carefully rehearsed words, she did her best to push down the feelings of resentment and anger that welled up in her chest. Some of these wounds went quite deep. But her faith gave her the power to push through. She heard Jesus' voice in her head. You're doing great, he yelled through the noise. I bet no one else is keeping these commandments as faithfully as you are. 
When you have a meal, invite the poor and you will be blessed, she read the next day. So at the shelter, she forced herself to invite some of those she served to her home for dinner. She felt very uncomfortable and fretted endlessly about how much time it would take to prepare food for this many people. And when she finally got them all to leave at the end of the night, the whole thing felt like a disaster. She felt guilty and exhausted. And she knew Jesus was disappointed, and she just wasn't sure how much faith she had left. The next day's reading was just too much. Woe to anyone by whom occasions for stumbling come, she read from the Gospel of Luke. If your conduct causes anyone else to slip up, it would be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and dive into the sea. And with anxiety and fatigue and shame muscling their way past her defenses, she tried to interpret these words. So not only was she supposed to keep these commandments, but it meant that if she didn't, and her lack of faith caused someone else to stumble, God would hate her? It was better to tie a rock around her neck and jump into the sea? And in so if someone sins against you, it kept going, you have to rebuke them. And if they repent, you have to forgive them, even if it happens up to seven times a day. How many people had started taking advantage of her? How much energy was it going to take to stand up to them and then to let it slide, even if it happened again and again? Her iron will began to rust. Her faith had brought her this far, but now she was beginning to wonder if she was strong enough. Jesus just expected too much. She was no Mother Teresa. She didn't know where the saints got their faith, but she just didn't have it. She wanted her old life back, and she knew that if she backslid, that there was grace, but it didn't seem acceptable to make the cold choice to backslide because it was too hard. Was there forgiveness in that? And she saw God standing at the pearly gates, arms crossed, lips pursed, shaking his head, and it was just too much. Lord, she lamented in harmony with the disciples, increase my faith. How much of what passes as faith is actually just a determined trust in our own willpower wrapped in religious language? How much of what we call faith is actually just a shame-based list of expectations that in the end leaves us exhausted and empty? Or we start to feel guilty because we know that we're supposed to want to do these things, but we just don't. Even, if, even in a congregation like ours, with so many who have walked away from that brand of faith, who among us has not cried out in fear or exhaustion when faced with the prospect of caring for one more person? Being kind to one more person? Figuring, it out, figuring out what to do about racism or climate change? It's just too much. In today's reading, the disciples come to a similar crisis, having found the limits of their faith. Whoever edited together the Gospel of Luke seems to have deliberately crafted this moment to be overwhelming. 
Jesus has been giving these impossible teachings about money and what to do with it. And now he comes out with these teachings on causing others to stumble and how often we should forgive. And for the disciples, for anybody, it's just too much. They're out of determination, out of willpower. They know they won't be able to measure up no matter how much they want to believe. Is it possible, they wonder, if they've just traded out the impossible standards of the Pharisees for the impossible standards of Jesus? Is this what all religion is? Impossible, guilt-fueled standards we can never hope to meet. Whatever kind of faith it takes to do this right, they know they don't have it. Lord, they cry out, increase our faith. But this thing they call faith, this desperate trust in the power of the self to push through and do what's right, I don't think that's the faith Jesus is talking about at all. Did you know it's estimated that there are somewhere in the vicinity of 4,200 different faiths practiced across the globe, with maybe four or five dominant groups making up the largest majority? But at the risk of oversimplifying, I would contend that there are now and have always been two actual major religions. There is that one that equates faith with the strength of the self and the one that equates faith with a trust in the spirit of love. And in this story, it is the difference between the faith of the disciples and the faith of Christ. The first, religion that fosters faith in the self, is probably one that we're familiar with. Religion that equates faith with the strength of our self will always leave us exhausted and empty. Other traditions will give this idea of the self different names. Some call it the false self. Some call it the ego. Some call it a set of empty illusions. Paul called it the flesh. John called it the world. But however you want to name it, they're all names for this collection of assumptions that we've constructed since we were children about how the world works, what we need to be afraid of, and what we need to grab onto in order to survive. It's our primal reactions, our urges of want and don't want, good and bad. This will bring me pleasure, and this will hurt me. It's the lens through which we filter all of our experiences, and what most of the spiritual traditions reveal is that while this self may have helped us survive infancy and childhood, most of it is no longer necessary. Grown adults walking around seeing the world only through a lens of good-bad, pleasure-pain has resulted in everything from everyday misery to global conflict. And we are well aware of the kind of religion that feeds this faith in the self. However, while it might feel like the self is what is most real, the most reliable source from which to pull our strength, to do the right thing, to be good, the truth is it's not actually the most real thing. Because religion that equates faith with strength in the self will always leave us exhausted and empty. And that brings us to the second major religion. Religion that helps us die to the self and equates faith with a trust in the spirit 
of love alive underneath. A mustard seed of this kind of faith can change everything. One wise person put it like this. Have you ever had that nightmare where there's a class that you've forgotten you're enrolled in, and now it's time to take the final test for which you're totally unprepared? I see a lot of nods. If you haven't, surely you've had something similar. For preachers, it's walking up to a pulpit to find that you've forgotten to prepare a sermon or that your notes are blank and you seem to have forgotten everything about God and by the time you're ready, everyone's gone. I literally had this dream on Friday. But whatever your nightmare, you're moving around in a panic. You're certain you're about to fail. And here's where we can see the difference between the two major religions. In the first, Jesus walks onto the scene and hands you a study guide, reminding you that the clock is ticking. But the second is more like Jesus walking onto the scene, approaching you and whispering in your ear, there is no exam. This isn't real. You're not playing the game you thought you were playing. So just take a breath and be. And with that, everything changes. With that, you begin a journey of what our scriptures call salvation. With that, you start to let go of everything you thought was important, of the inconveniences and the desires and the self-image and the control, and you find freedom. And when you're free, the things that Jesus teaches, they just flow from the very essence of our being. This is Jesus' game. This is his religion. It's a faith not in our ability to play by the rules of the nightmare, but in what we find when we wake up. And what we find is what Jesus refers to as the kingdom of God or eternal life, or the Holy Spirit. The great spiritual work, then, is the work of allowing that self to die through awareness and grace. It's the work of taking up your cross and losing your life, yourself, so that you might find it. On that journey of becoming aware of and dying to the self, of being crucified with Christ, we discover that it is no longer we who live, but Christ that lives through us. God loving the world through our unique manifestation. Then you're truly a member of Christ's body. A member of an expression of something much larger and much real, something eternal. It's hard. And it's a life work of two steps forward, one step back. But the burden is easy and the yoke is light. And when we find this place of freedom, when we taste it, then things like loving our neighbor, things like being kind or doing good works, they flow naturally from that relationship. Questions like, will I have enough energy for that? Or am I strong enough for that? No longer make much sense. Because it becomes a matter of trusting the infinite to flow through us. Beyond ourselves, we discover the actual meaning of that phrase, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus' religion helps us to die to the self and equates faith with a trust in that spirit of love living underneath. 
The disciples at this point, I imagine, were struggling to see the difference. Even a mustard seed of that faith of Christ probably felt foreign to them at this point. So Jesus, as he often does, gives them another way to wrestle with this idea. He tells them a story. Now please keep in mind that the key to understanding this story is to see it as best we can through the cultural lens of the ones who wrote it down. And these are lenses in which master-servant relationships are common and understood. And if we can be generous enough to engage on those terms, when we can find the comparison that Jesus is making, then we can wash the hegemony off of it and find ourselves in it. So bear with me as we wade into this problematic and imperfect metaphor. If one of you has a servant, Jesus begins, and that servant worked all day plowing the field or herding the sheep and then came in from the fields, would you say to them, great job today? Go ahead and sit down at the table. No, that's not how that dynamic works. You would say, now it's time to prepare my dinner, and then afterwards you can go and cater to your own needs. In this world, servants have a role to play, and it just flows out of their identity as a servant. You wouldn't give a gold sticker to them for doing what they were naturally going to do. Seeing things through the lens of faith in the self, though, would be like seeing a servant begrudgingly doing the work for you, expecting merit and praise at every step of the way, worried all the time that they won't actually have the time and energy to do what they really need to do at the end of the day. No, Jesus says, we are servants, allowing our good works to flow from who we are, and when we're finished, we say we are but simple workers, and we've done no more than our duty. Faith in love means allowing goodness to flow naturally from who we are, while faith in the self is always seeking merit and worried about a scarcity of time and energy. Now, if this story doesn't help you, don't worry too much about it. I get the impression the disciples, it didn't really help them either. And as Jesus looked through them, looked at them through the eyes of greatest compassion, he thought, that's okay, because the story isn't over. I don't think any of them would really be able to fully understand what the faith of Christ looked like until his death and resurrection, the fullest display of dying to self and finding love emerge alive on the other side. So this brings us back to that woman, lacking faith enough, or perhaps we should say willpower enough to be a good Christian. And I wonder what came next in her story. I wonder if she had to water down Jesus' teachings into something significantly more manageable, something her faith was capable of handling. That's the way the story often ends. Or I wonder if she just clenched her jaw and barreled forward and projected all of her fear and guilt onto others and what they were doing wrong. I've seen that ending too. But then, of course, there's also the chance that she kept reading got to the end of the story and realized that she had the self-justifying faith of a Pharisee when what she needed was the self-dying faith of Christ. Maybe she realized it was never a matter of applying Jesus' teachings as if they were something she had to make room for in her already cluttered sense of self. 
Maybe she realized that rather than application, Jesus' faith is a matter of implication, of finding herself woven into the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and finding that story woven into herself. Maybe. And if that's the case, then there's a chance she was finally able to rest in that, to find herself beloved in the arms of God, regardless of her capacity to keep commandments. There's a chance that that unconditional love disarmed and exposed the lie of herself, and she found the freedom to live in oneness with the Spirit of God allowing God's love to flow from her just being. And though that way is narrow, and there are few who take it, I've seen the story end like that too. And when it does, it heals the world. There are only two major world religions. The one that equates faith with the strength of self and the one that equates faith with a trust in the spirit of love. And just a mustard seed of the latter can liberate us and change the world. So Northminster, which is ours?